Well, this weekend we continue our series, Hashtag Fail. Uh, hashtag welcome to Hashtag NCC. Um, and I promise you I will not do that again. Just had to get out of my system. All right. Well, this week Laura decided to repaint one of our walls in our home. And I honestly should have helped her. I felt bad not helping her. I felt like less of a man not helping her, but she recruited Parker instead of me. There's a reason for that because Laura knows our strengths and weaknesses. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I had a summer job uh, painting homes, me and three of my friends. It lasted two days. The guy who owned this little painting outfit uh, called me and told me that he needed to downsize. <laughs> if you're the only one of four people who got downsized, you got fired. <laughs> and I still remember where I was, Bobby Schlembecker's house. <laughs> and he told me you don't, that I didn't need to come in the next day, which translation ever. And I joke about it, but 25 years later, I still have a deep sense of inadequacy every time I see someone painting. <laughs> Hashtag fail. I love a good success story. They're inspiring. But every once in a while, I need a good failure story. I need a failure story because I need to know that I'm not alone. Uh, I need to know that other people lose their temper and make bad decisions and miss opportunities. Uh, let me come clean. As a pastor, I feel inadequate most of the time. And as a parent, I feel inadequate most of the time. What's interesting is that when I travel and speak with other pastors across the country, I often share the story of National Community Church, and, and people like that story, but you want to know what story they really love? They love it when I share the story of our failed church plant in Chicago, because that they can identify with. Aren't you grateful that while the Bible is full of success stories, it's got a boatload, yea, even a motherload of failure stories so that we know that we are not alone. And Genesis 4 is one of those stories, and we'll get there uh, in a minute. A few weeks ago, we had a gathering for NCC parents while our youth group met. It was led by our very own Bonnie Martin, who is a clinical psychologist. And uh, she said something. It was really for parents of teens. She said something that was so fascinating. Uh, honestly, I didn't want to believe it at first. She said that perfect parents create the same level of shame in their children as abus abusive parents. That studies show this. Now, that sounds crazy. But if you grow up in an environment where you have to be perfect, what it means is that you cannot hashtag fail. You never measure up. 
and you live with the anxiety and guilt that is the byproduct of perfectionism. So you know what we talked about a few weeks ago? We talked about good enough parenting. So you don't have to be a perfect parent. Good enough parenting. Okay, is that as freeing to any other parents here this weekend as it is to me? Uh, I think the reason why that rocked my world is because it followed on the heels of a conversation that Laura and I had on one of our coffee dates. She detected me beating myself up because of some mistakes I made as a dad and and she made one of the most, I, I am married, I think, to the wisest woman in the world. She said, you think that our kids are going to follow Christ because of you. And I think our kids are going to follow Christ in spite of us. Like, wow, what just happened? Now let me apply it to church. I think there are a lot of churches that induce shame because they practice perfectionism, which is called legalism. It's an attempt to justify ourselves by our good deeds. Now, on paper, we would say that we're sinners saved by grace, but in practice, it's a spiritual perfectionism that's absolutely contrary to the gospel message. And so let me put it out there. We are sinners saved by grace Every last one of us. There is only one thing that qualifies you for the grace of God. Your sin. Can't earn it. Can't deserve it. It is a gift from God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, we watched a brief little introduction to celebrate recovery. And it's folks who have just come to a place in their life where they recognize an addiction, which is really a nice dressed up word for habitual sin. Something that you don't control anymore, it controls you. You know, you don't control your drinking, your drinking controls you. You don't control your temper, your temper controls you. You don't control your lust, your lust controls you. And before you know it, you find yourself in a place where you need some deliverance from God. But let me tell you something. I have far more respect for people who have the courage to go get counseling or to confess a sin or go to celebrate recovery and say, I've got an issue and I need some help. Far more respect for that person than the person who pretends to be perfect. I know you have junk in your trunk. And so do I. Just take that literally. This is the place where we come Clean. There isn't one of us who hasn't struggled with lust, struggled with pride, struggled with anger. I have a pastor friend who says, uh, likes to remind his congregation, Mike Minner out at Reston Bible Church, he says, uh, he, he says to his congregation every once in a while, if you knew what I was thinking, you wouldn't even walk through the doors of this church. He said, but if I knew what you were thinking, we wouldn't let you in. I have another friend who pastors a church in Vegas. They must have the highest per capita leather and tattoos of any church in the country. I felt like it was at a Harley Davidson convention. And it was so cool. They have a little mantra plastered all over their walls. It's okay not to be okay. 
See, I think this series is about reminding us that the church is not a showroom for saints. It's an emergency room for sinners. Jesus said it's the sick who need the doctor. And then the great physician himself said, uh, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I met someone last week at one of our locations who just a few months ago in the middle of a Starbucks uh, put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and NCC, her letter to that point, prayed with her. They had this incredible moment. She's been coming to NCC. And, and uh, I could tell by the look on her face that she had finally found what she had been looking for her entire life. She had found a place to heal, a place to grow, a place to love and be loved, a place where you have, in the words of uh, one of our worship leaders, Chris Douglas, a place where you have the grace to grow. I love that. May this be a place where we have the grace to grow, where we can hashtag fail, but find that God's grace is here for us. Now, you know, Paul wrote half of the New Testament went on three missionary journeys. No one beside Jesus had more influence in the history of humankind than Paul. I think I can get by with saying that. But he was once named Saul. Uh, he murdered people. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. A few weeks ago, Laura was at a gathering uh, with some women uh, and uh, just spent a day uh, with someone whose name you would know. She is one of the most influential women in Christendom. She's written more books and influenced more people um, th than you can imagine. But, but what's interesting is Laura debriefed kind of nine pages of notes from that day. What I could tell impacted her the most was a moment um, when, when this wonderful woman um, had the courage to say that if I don't spend time in the presence of God every morning, I'm not nice. <laughs> and neither am I. And neither are you. Yes, We're mean. <laughs> We're greedy, we're lustful, we're angry, we're resentful. But for the grace of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So if we could ever get past ourselves and let the Spirit of God truly fill us and consume us, we would produce that kind of fruit and have that kind of influence in our lives. So Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Um, lean into this. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I think we to try to convince people that we are the best of sinners. We wouldn't dare say that we're not, but we'd like to think we're the best of sinners. Paul wasn't doing that, not covering anything up, not short-selling anything. He went on record and said, I am the absolute worst. I am the biggest hashtag failure ever. But there's a God who turns Saul's into Paul's. If you discount your sin, you will discount the grace of God. But just so that you don't forget this, 
If you discount at 10% your sin, put it on 10% discount, you will discount the grace of God 10%, I promise you. Let, let's say you, you um, discount your sin by 50%. You've just marked down God's grace by 50%. Let me tell you what you end up with, cheap grace. Grace that you don't appreciate because you don't understand your sin in light of a God who is absolutely holy and perfect. But if we can come to terms with our sin, then we can come to terms with the grace of God. A God who turns Saul's into Paul's and a God who wants to do the same thing in your life this weekend. Genesis 4. Here we go. Verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve. Let's just stop there for a minute. Adam and Eve made love, and then we tend to kind of read right past that, but uh, forgive me for saying it, this is awesome. (laughs) What a gift from God. Sex is not a good idea, it's a God idea. It's a gift from God to a husband and a wife within the covenant relationship of marriage. It was God's idea. So Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, this is fun because right about here, I'm wondering how Adam and Eve are processing it because this has never happened before. Like I'm kind of wondering if Adam's wondering if Eve's putting on a little bit of weight. God's like, no, 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 no. There's a baby in there. There's a baby in where? No, there's a baby in there. And Adam's like, how in the world did it get in there? (laughs) You guys, this is crazy, crazy stuff happening right here in Genesis 4. Like, I'm kind of wondering, did God give them what to expect when you're expecting? You know, (laughs) hey, let me take you through the Lamaze class. Let's work on your breathing technique. Um, You know, I I have no idea, but eventually Eve gives birth to Cain. What a miracle and what a moment. All the hopes and dreams every parent has ever experienced in that moment, they experience it. Oh, who is this baby boy, our firstborn, going to become? Now, we have no idea what kind of kid Cain was. Really, what kind of parents Adam and Eve were. But somewhere along the way, Adam and Eve did the same thing that caused Cain. And along came Abel. (laughs) It says, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So we have a shepherd, Abel, and we have a farmer, Cain. Isn't it interesting that in the light of the law of first things that we talked about a few weeks ago, that you're gonna see this in just a moment, Uh, you already see the concept of first fruits. Both Cain and Abel are going to bring an offering to the Lord. The the problem is Cain brings a sacrifice that is no sacrifice at all. He doesn't give God the best. And so in verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. This is the first kind of instance of anger. There's an anger issue at 
play. And this is really what we're going to talk about this weekend. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Some emotions come into play that are new to the human experience. Now, let me make an observation right here. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. I, I think this is the key point. Unconfessed sin equals unresolved anger. Take my word for it. Unconfessed sin equals unresolved anger. If there is anger in your life, it's probably because there's some unconfessed sin. There's a sin in your life, nine times out of 10, that has not been dealt with. Now, I'll talk about it. I, I know you can have anger because of things that were done to you and you experience injustice. I totally understand that. But let's make it personal this weekend. I think most of the time, our anger issues are sin issues. Sin issues are anger issues. So let's talk synonyms here and make sure that we understand that we are on the same page. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now I'm no psychotherapist, um, but I have some personal experience with anger and uh, here's, here's my theory. Yes, some anger is a result of injustice. Someone does something, says something, hurts you, not dismissing that, but I think most anger is self-anger. We beat ourselves up because we disappoint ourselves because we know we didn't bring our best. We let God down, we let ourselves down, and we beat ourselves up. But while it often starts with beating ourselves up, if you don't deal with the unresolved anger issues in your life through confession and repentance, you end up beating someone else up. And we all know this is true. You have a bad day at work, you get home, you kick the dog. And you don't have patience with your kids. And you aren't loving towards your spouse. And you take it out on everybody else around you because you haven't resolved the anger in your heart. Now in the case of Cain, he takes it out on his brother, doesn't just beat him up, kills him. See, if we don't get right with God, we take it out on others. All of us have anger issues. The only solution to our anger issues is the grace of God. It's the only thing that can change the equation. It's God's grace that zeroes out our anger and that'll make more sense in just a couple of minutes. Verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you not, do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Why are you angry? You. What, why are you angry? I think many of us experience anger and we never fully understand why it is that we are angry. You've got to get to the root issue. You've got to figure out what you're mad about. You've got to reverse engineer it. And God does it for Cain. It's really not that complicated. It says uh, Cain didn't do what was right. The biblical word for that is sin. Most anger issues are sinful shortcomings. We're angry at ourselves, and if we don't confess our sin, the anger amplifies and begins to affect other people around us. Again, unconfessed sin equals unresolved anger. So is there any unconfessed sin in your life? You need to deal with that thing. 
Because if you don't, it's going to be problems for the ables in your life. Uh, your anger issues are like Hansel and Gretel's breadcrumbs, Ariadne's thread. They will take you back to a place where you will begin to see where you need to get right with God. I would suggest that this is the first divorce in the Bible. There's a divorce that happens between two family members. A little bit later this weekend, we're gonna, in this service, we're gonna celebrate communion. Communion brings us back together. Here's what I'm pretty sure of. Some of you this weekend, you've divorced yourself from God. You've done exactly what Cain has done. You're mad at yourself, but you turn your back on God and, and you've walked further away from God, gotten yourself into a little bit of trouble. You've divorced yourself from God. But here's the amazing thing. God wants to welcome you back. He wants to reconcile that relationship. That is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And communion is a way that we celebrate God reconciling and bringing us back into right relationship with him. Verse seven, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Love, uh, Heather's new book, Amazed and Confused, read it on the plane to Israel. Uh, so good. She comes out of the corner throwing punches. God is not nice. That is one of the best first sentences in any book I've ever read because it creates tension. But then explains God is not nice, but God is love, and then talks about the difference between those two things. As I read this passage this week, I, I, I found myself kind of juxtaposing it with, with Heather's book. Um, what if God had just wanted to be nice to Cain? Well, probably would have just ignored it. Man, I wonder. Abel went on an awfully long trip. Where is he? Or maybe he just said, man, that isn't, but it's okay. It's okay. Uh, we'll forget it this time. But God isn't nice. God is love. He's a perfect combination of grace and truth. His love is just. His love is jealous. It refuses to lower the standard, but then he lowered himself. God became man, went to the cross so that we could get over that sin hump, if you will. Did you notice what God said? Do what is right. This isn't difficult. Do the right thing. Uh, Cain had an opportunity to get better or to get better. Uh, he had the opportunity to choose his response. But here's what I've discovered. It's much easier to act like a Christian than it is to react like a Christian. Your reactions are far more revealing than your actions. And that's where most of us fail. This week I was at a gathering called Cadre, started by a couple of NCCers, uh, Derek and Melanie Coburn. It's a gathering of entrepreneurs. The, the speaker um, was Cameron Harold, uh, famous for 1-800-GOT-JUNK and college pro painters and very successful in business and told a story uh, about Zappos. Now, part of the story, most of you have probably heard, uh, they're famous not just for customer satisfaction, but for employee satisfaction. After someone finishes their training, they offer them $3,000 to quit. 
And so this weekend, we're going to offer you $3,000 to leave National Community Church. I'm just kidding. Um, but I love this. I love this idea. The online shoe vendor uh, uh, has a way of kind of protecting their culture. Here's what they do. They send a bus um, there in... Uh, uh, just outside of Las Vegas, they sent a bus to the airport, pick up these prescri- uh, pr- prospective employees who are going to interview for the job. But what those people don't know is that the bus driver is a mole. He's part of the HR process. And so when they actually get to uh, the interview at the headquarters of Zappos, some people never even make it into a formal interview because that bus driver goes, And he tells them what kind of person they might not want to hire. Who was polite and who was rude? Who, after a long trip, how did you treat people on the other bus? Did you help someone get their luggage on? Or did you kind of jockey for position a little bit? And so some people are literally sent home before they even formally interview. I'm just saying, like, how genius is that? Here's my point. It's not our actions that really reveal who we are. All of us can sit down in a formal interview and put our best foot forward. It's really a bus ride uh, after a flight that's a much better gauge of kind of our emotional baseline, the baseline of our integrity, who we are as a person. Here's what I'm getting at. This weekend, I'm not as concerned about your actions as I am your reactions. See, what we have to see is there's a split second here where Cain had the opportunity to have the right reaction to something wrong he had done. He had made a mistake, hashtag fail, but his reaction is the wrong one. So so let me ask you, you know, what do you do when someone cuts you off in traffic? When you and your spouse struggle with sexual compatibility, when you dread Mondays because your boss is mean, when you're in a funk as a family, when you're mad at yourself because you keep making the same mistake, what's your reaction in those situations? Because your reaction right there will make you or break you. Now, you can make bad worse. You can compound sin. And that's what Cain does. Uh, His anger turns into premeditated murder. We let lust turn into pornography and then adultery, or we let pride turn into uh, selfishness. We let greed turn into cheating on our taxes. And, And you can make a bad decision worse. You can compound it by another bad decision, or you can stop the bleeding. How? There's only one way to stop the bleeding. It's the shed blood of Christ. His blood is the agent of our forgiveness. His blood protects us. It's pictured by the Passover. Um, As the Israelites leave Egypt, the Passover lamb is slaughtered, and God tells them to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And, And when he does, the death angel comes through Egypt, but wherever the blood covers the door, the death angel passes over, thus the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb. It's his blood that saves us, forgives us, protects us. But there is a beautiful foreshadowing in this story. Can I suggest that the blood of Christ is the mark of Cain? 
Now here's what it says in verse eight. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your, bro your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll, I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Isn't that interesting? A little bit of projection happening right about here. The Lord said to him, not so. And this, this is where there's a turn in this story that you would not see it coming if you didn't already know the story. Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I think we quit on Cain. I think we quit on him. Listen, not letting him off the hook. He is the first murderer in the Bible. And so really, murder is an offspring of this one terrible decision. But you need to see something here. God doesn't give up on Cain. It's amazing to me. God doesn't give up on you. He does more than forgive him. Do you see what's happening here? God puts Cain within protective custody. He puts him in his witness protection program. Now, we don't know exactly what the mark of Cain was. Lots of scholarly debate on that topic. Also a lot of debate where the other people that Cain references come from. But those issues are beside the point. This is an act of tremendous mercy. Cain kills Abel, and then God protects Cain. There's a fascinating link between Genesis 4.24 and Matthew 18.22 to this idea of sevenfold vengeance. Let me connect the dots. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Where did he come up with that? Was that out of a vacuum or was that out of a long memory that had literally memorized the Pentateuch word for word? And then Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Well, where does that come from? Well, if you look down at verse 24, it says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. This is more than a hashtag fail story. This is how God responds to our failures. Please hear me. This is how God responds to our failures. He takes us into his protective custody. When we turn our back on God, he does not turn his back on us. He never does. It's not in his nature. He can't turn his back on you. In fact, he's got your back. Cain assumes that God is turning his back on him, but God assures him that he is not. Now, here's what I know. I don't know if you'd say it, but you feel this way. 
all of us have felt this way. All of us have felt at moments that God has surely turned his back on us. But if you turn around, you'll find a God, not with his back turned to you, but a God with his arms wide open. Wanting to embrace you, forgive you, love you, heal you, deliver you. That's it. But we have to repent. Word means to turn around. Can't turn our back on God. We've got to turn back around. And if we do, we're going to find a God who's right there, arms wide open. Now, for the sake of time, a um, couple of quick thoughts. Number one, don't play the comparison game. No one wins. There's the first instance of the comparison game in Scripture. Cain and Abel. Cain comparing his offering to Abel. Uh, comparison will lead you in one of two paths. One is the path of jealousy and the other is the path of pride. And both of those will kill you. Um, don't play the comparison game. Number two, this just comes from personal experience. Pray for the people you want to kill. There's someone that you don't like I said this before, the true litmus test, I believe, is when you can love someone you don't like. It's easy to love someone you like or love someone that loves you. No, can you love someone you don't like? For me, that starts with prayer. When I begin to pray for someone that I have an issue with, and it's my issue, isn't it? Then God begins to turn my heart and my feelings towards that person begin to change. Number three, I'd say learn the lesson. We all know people have been following Christ for 25 years, but they don't have 25 years of experience. They have one year of experience repeated 25 times. <laughs> Why? Because they're not learning the lesson. All God is saying is here, here is, Cain, learn, learn the lesson. I mean, just do what's right the next time. Bring your best. Just bring an offering to me. Will you not be accepted? Will I not favor you? Like, learn the lesson. I think the fourth thing I'd say is don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you don't deal with it sooner, it will catch up with you later. That's Ephesians 4.26. By the way, it also says, in your anger, do not sin. I had a professor in graduate school that uh, said, you need to figure out um, what makes you pound your fist on the table and what brings tears to your eyes. In other words, what makes you mad and what makes you sad. Now, I would personally add glad, what puts a smile on your face. But we've got to understand that our emotions are clues to the God-ordained passion that he's given to us. This week, I just happened to be at uh, the H2O gathering convened by World Vision. Do you know that 766 million people don't have access to clean drinking water? I mean, come on, more, more people die um, from symptoms of diarrhea than tuberculosis, malaria, and AIDS combined. Should we not get mad at that? I mean, the pain of a parent losing a child, like, that doesn't mess you up inside. See, what I'm saying is like, we gotta, we gotta redeem those angry emotions, and it's got to be a righteous indignation to do what's right and to make a difference. All right, we're going to wrap this thing up. Verse 17, 
Cain made love to his wife. Here we go again. There's an awful lot of lovemaking in this chapter. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city. Interesting. First architect, first real estate developer, first contractor. Um, went from farming to building. Builds a city. I just love this little detail. Named it after his son, Enoch. Why not? Your mistakes do not have to ruin the rest of your life. Your mistakes don't even have to ruin the people that you've hurt, that you've failed. It is never too late to be who you might have been. Jesus broke the curse so that you can break the cycle. Please hear me. Cain, his life was over. Or was it? No, God had grace on him. Put him in his protective covering. He went on with his life. I'm sure had moments of regret. The Bible really doesn't tell us how he processed it, whether he came to a moment of repentance or not. Oh, but he had a son, and that son, that son Enoch, the Bible says in Hebrews 11, 5, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found. Because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Cain's mistake wasn't big enough to overshadow God's grace. And God's grace went to the next generation and the next generation and the next one. I promise you this, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. God's grace is sufficient. Enoch's dad was messed up, had anger issues. But Enoch walked with God and did what was right. Now you're saying, all right, Pastor Mark, that's great. But what about Abel? Because this is the movie you walk out of. You say, you gotta be kidding me. I paid 13 bucks for a ticket for that ending? The bad guy is saved. And the good guy is killed. I hate this movie. Right? This does not seem like a happily ever after story. But Hebrews 11 verse 4. Abel is the very first person in the hall of faith, as it's called, Hebrews 11. Very first person mentioned. By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. See, no one could take that away. You can kill a good man. That, listen, at the end of the day, when we die, it's, it's a promotion into the presence of God. You can't take away what Abel did, but this is the part I love. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. What a legacy. What a legacy. Listen, the older I get, the more people I know, more people I meet, 
that suffer tragedy. People die long before I think they should. Our family has experienced that. When my father-in-law died of a heart attack at 55, prime of life, prime of ministry. Doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair. But I promise you this, my father-in-law still speaks from the grave. He left a legacy. Our time on earth is not up to us. We do have a choice to make. Are we gonna bring our best offering to the Lord? I think that's the challenge this weekend. Let's not walk out of here and be Cain. Let's walk out of here and say, I'm gonna bring my best offering to the Lord. And if you're here and you are Cain, well, the good news is that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us this weekend to not just be hearers of the word. Pray that your word would do more than just fire across synapses and register in our cerebral cortex. God, I pray that the truth of this message would go the 12 inches from our head to our heart. If we have unconfessed sin in our life, Help us identify it by that unresolved anger in our life. Help us get it right. God, help us not make bad worse. Help us stop the bleeding through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that no one would walk out of this place without just simply coming to a place where they understand that they are a sinner, but they can be saved by grace. Can't earn it, don't deserve it, but they can receive it. And so, Lord, I pray that right here, right now, even as we take these communion elements in just a moment, symbolizing the covenant relationship that you have made with us, the cup, which symbolizes your shed blood. God, I pray that many would take communion for the very first time, symbolizing and sealing the surrendering of their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.